0: This is our final instalment in this WITS Impact for Goods podcast series, and I'm delighted as a philosophy student to have a fellow philosopher as our final conversation we're going to be having, a world-class philosopher in Professor Lucy Ales, who is at WITS University. Lucy, thank you so much for agreeing to be part of this podcast series.
1: Thanks so much for including me, UCBS. I'm delighted to be here and to be talking to you about philosophy.
0: My first encounter with philosophy was at age 17, because I had a, a, or not 17, earlier than that, actually, I think 14. I had a very clever, very good history teacher, Mr. Grant, who gave me a copy, because clearly he studied it at UCT, of Thomas Nagel, What Does It All Mean? When did you first encounter philosophy?
1: Actually, you see, because my first encounter was much later than yours. I started university studying architecture because I didn't really know what I wanted to do and I liked maths and science and I liked art so I thought it would be a combination of them and it's actually just something different and it wasn't for me I did a year of architecture and then I decided that wasn't for me so I switched to a BA in fine arts Mm -hmm. and in fine arts you had to take one other credit I had no idea what philosophy was I couldn't have told you a single thing about it but I took that as my um extra credit in addition to the, the practical um, fine art subjects and history of art. And it was love at first sight. And I've basically never looked back.
0: Looking back on it now, what turned you on about philosophy?
1: It was the clarity with which people were interrogating fundamental questions. So in history of art lectures, they would be talking about works of art. And the philosophers were saying, what is a work of art? In history of art lectures, they were talking about, well, this painting expresses this and that. The philosophers were saying, what would it even mean for a painting to express something? But not only were the philosophers asking these really fundamental questions, they were then addressing them rigorously and carefully. And to me, the three things that are really amazing about philosophy are that it's it asks these absolutely fundamental assumptions, questions. It asks the, the uh, questions, the assumptions underlying all the other disciplines. But, and then it tries to address them in a way that is both very carefully argued and rigorous and also wildly imaginative. So these crazy thought experiments, but pursued with very careful, rigorous logic. And it made me feel like, wow, there's clarity here. We could, really, we could actually really get
0: somewhere. That is absolutely amazing. I haven't looked at that Thomas Nagel introductory book to philosophy in many years. But when you talk about the fundamental questions philosophy raises that other disciplines don't, that is almost verbatim page one of what does it all mean? That awesome. unfold a teenager because it went through a list of What would a physicist ask? But this is what a philosopher would ask. What would an historian ask? But this is what a philosopher would ask. What would a psychologist ask? But this is how a philosopher would ask. And it was quite mesmerizing to realize those fundamental questions.
1: It was amazing to me to realize that that there is actually this discipline where people are asking these questions, Mm. but also then trying to work out how we might go about answering them Mm. and doing that carefully and rigorously.
0: Did you have the freedom to pursue it as a subject without worrying about whether or not, and will come to application later, whether or not it makes a, a fundamental difference to the world and B, whether you'd be able to make money out of it?
1: You know, I was very lucky in having parents who firstly... They um, had no worries at all about me what, knowing what I wanted to do or changing directions. You know, I came home and said, um, I'm pl- you know, I've, studied, I've been studying architecture, but actually I don't want to anymore. I'm changing to fine art. And they just totally respected my decisions. Um, I, I will say they weren't funding at all. I, I worked a lot to airport. So it's not that I was just doing it on, on their dime. I had, I had scholarships and jobs. But they were totally supportive of me just pursuing what I was interested in Mm. And also, I was very lucky that their outlook on the world, which I, th- I really support and appreciate, is that you don't have to go into university studies thinking, what is the exact career that this is preparing me for? Mm. You go into university studies aiming to get an education, to learn thinking skills, to learn about the world, to learn about culture. Mm. And that will put you in a better position to be employed in the long run and to do better and more interesting work than some very specific narrow vocational training, unless you know already, you know, that you want to be a doctor or something. Mm. So I felt confident and obviously there's a lot of, um, you know, middle-class privilege behind that, but I felt confident that becoming educated and learning about the world would be a way of finding something I wanted to do and and, and training me for that and that you don't have to, already know what it is exactly that you want to do.
0: Yeah, I share that. And I shared that even though I was at the time working class, I'm now thoroughly (laughs) middle class. (laughs) I abandoned my legal theory studies. That was my equivalent of your architecture and went in the route of philosophy. Philosophy has got many branches. Tell us, as you became a graduate student, with the pressure to increasingly specialize, what were the questions you chose to focus on for purposes of doctoral studies?
1: So I I did my PhD in um, history of philosophy. Philosophy has a very strange relationship with its history. If you look at a subject like science, the history of science is a very interesting subject in its own right, but it's not part of science. It's not what current scientists are doing. It's a different subject. It's history. But philosophers treat many dead philosophers as live interlocutors in pursuing difficult and interesting questions. So I work a lot on the German philosopher Immanuel Kant, and my PhD was on a central part of his philosophy, which was his account of the nature of the relationship between mind and reality. So it's basically about the extent to which our experience of the world reflects the nature of the world itself and the extent to which our experience of the world reflects what our minds bring to the world. That's just, at a very general level, um, the part of his philosophy that my PhD was was focused
0: on. Mm. We're living through an interesting year, Lucy, and I wonder what philosophers can bring to this particular year. Mm. And it's so interesting, as I... As I was waiting to be in conversation with you today, I, I was thinking about, for example, COVID-19. Here we have a pandemic that is a global existential crisis for, for us as a species and for us at an individual level. In what way can a philosopher help us to puzzle through something like, for example, a pandemic?
1: I mean, I think there are just a million things that philosophy has to bring to what we're going through at the moment. The most obvious level, there are, in fact, the professional philosophers are uh, employed in hospitals on ethics boards. And you know, so the, the, the first thing that, when, when um, the hospitals were getting full in Italy, the first thing that COVID struck us with was questions about medical rationing and what are ethical ways of making decisions about that. Can you put someone on a ventilator and take them off a ventilator again, if you think they're not going to survive, but, some, but the ventilator could enable somebody else to survive. Very, very difficult questions there. And that, that, that's one of the most obvious ways. But then almost immediately we also see questions being raised about the nature of civil liberties, is a lockdown intention with our civil liberties i've been doing some work in political philosophy recently in my view it's not but i do think actually there is um attention with human rights if you don't allow not attention in fact a contradiction if you don't allow people to earn a living but mm-hmm. you don't support them I, I i think that's indefensible but although I, so i don't agree with those who think that a lockdown itself is intentional civil liberties but there's really good philosophical work to be done there. There's also all sorts of features of the nature of the experience of what we're going through. Mm. So I have a colleague here um, in America where I am at the moment who works on the philosophy of time and he works on Craig Callender. He's a very brilliant philosopher and he works on trying to reconcile the physics of time with our lived experience of time. Mm -hmm. And he um, has done some popular writing about the nature of our experience of time under lockdown, mm. which is absolutely fascinating. Why does time appear to move very slowly and then suddenly have passed with nothing having happened? So <laughs> he's written about that. And then there are also just fundamental existential questions about how we find meaning in the life, life about the, the nature of relationships, about the nature of connections that the philosophy reflects on. So, at all these different levels from the nature of public policy and thinking about inequality and civil liberties to the nature of medical rationing, to the nature of our current lived experience. um, I I think
0: philosophy has things to contribute in all of those. Do philosophers contribute in those ways in the public space or are they like some parts of the humanities, a bit shy to do so or Are we just unaware of many philosophers that do wear multiple hats, like your colleague that does popular writing?
1: Um, I think it's probably mixed. There's probably a lot of people who don't particularly want to get out into public. But I think there's a reasonable number of people who do write popular work. And there's an increasing number of philosophers writing popular books, actually. And I think there are people writing columns and blog posts and things and Yeah, possibly it isn't uh, distributed and promoted well enough in a way that would make more people aware of it.
0: Hmm. There are other big questions that we are grappling with this year that we have for many, many years. And I want you to articulate to those listening to this podcast how a professional philosopher can contribute differently to colleagues of yours that may be in a legal faculty, a law faculty, or alternatively in a political science faculty. Let's take the incredible, incredible, again, global focus that we are seeing on racism currently, white supremacy, anti-black racism in particular. Those are ginormous justice questions that have been centered in the year 2020. How can a philosopher help us tackle some of those issues?
1: Um, Lots of different ways, I think, Eusebius. And in fact, interestingly, I've just finished teaching a class I teach regularly on philosophy of race in which we look at some of those topics. So one of the things philosophers spend a lot of time doing is um, trying to very carefully define and make distinctions between things and clarify concepts. So for example, In this course I've just been teaching on philosophy of race, we spend quite a bit of time really making sure we're very clear about the relations between but the differences between concepts like racism, white supremacy, white privilege, Mm. how these things relate to each other but how they're different, which concept is doing the work at which place, Mm. which concept we need. That work, I think, is very important. Mm. And then also looking at how we think about injustice and how we think about responding to it. You know, there are incredibly uh, difficult philosophical questions when we're thinking about legal questions about land and ownership and mm-hmm. property and um, what... We, dispossession, you know, so, so there are obviously legal questions, political questions, social questions, but definitely philosophical questions and thinking about the nature of that. Mm-hmm. And also in thinking about how we theorize responsibility, who owes what to whom. So um, the, a Republican politician recently was talking about how reparations for slavery don't make sense because nobody alive today had slaves and it's too far in the past and you know that's one of the questions we address in my class when we're talking about reparations why does it make sense who is responsible you know when and what the, the the point is we're not looking at the responsibility of individuals who had slaves we're looking at the responsibility of a continuous constitutional entity the united states of america that has had a continuous. I can imagine existence. lucy
0: I can imagine a sharp student not taking your class, who is a very good student in political science, coming up with insights that is a response to that politician. What is it about taking a philosophy class that increases your ability statistically to handle that question particularly well?
1: Well, that's a good question, Eusebius, and I don't want to say that other subjects (laughs) wouldn't also give people (laughs) good skills for dealing with these questions, and in fact, I think um, all sorts of subjects in the humanities would contribute enormously to that. Obviously, history, Mm -hmm. obviously political science, literature too, in fact, Um, but I think what philosophy does is it really trains your ability to focus clearly on the details of arguments and follow the arguments carefully and rigorously
0: Mm.
1: i think anybody who listens to your radio shows can can see that you argue in a way that is clearer and more analytical than the average radio talk show host and that's a philosophical training Mm. so that that ability to to, to pay very careful attention to the distinctions and follow the, argue, the logic rigorously at the same time as thinking imaginatively is something philosophers bring. But we don't do it in isolation. And you know, we're doing this in interaction with political scientists. And mm. I think philosophers have a lot to learn from political scientists too.
0: Mm. There's another example, and I saw you on social media referencing this in fact, there's a big case that has just been handed down in the U.S. Supreme Court of uh, Supreme Court that have grappled with equality rights for yes. um, sexual minorities, and I want you to tell the story of how, but ex- exactly on the point you've just made, yes. Lucy, in terms of words and concepts and how to distinguish them, how philosophers enabled excellent lawyers on the bench to be able to handle a critically important set of legal questions with an outcome now that will be incredibly far-reaching.
1: Yes, that's a, a really fabulous point. So the Supreme Court, there's a law in America that protects you against discrimination on the basis of race and sex. And so that means that, for example, you can't be fired on the basis of you know, in America, you can basically fire at will, as far as I can tell. There's not much labor law, but you can't be fired for your race and you can't be fired for being a woman. But up till now in many states, you have been able to fire someone for being gay or for being transgender.
0: Mm.
1: And so the question between, before the Supreme Court was, does this law, which says you can't discriminate against people on the basis of race and sex, include uh, inc- discriminating against somebody on the basis of sexual orientation or, and, or gender identity. Mm. And the people who don't want to extend the provisions think that, well, clearly say, discriminating against somebody on the basis of their sex is discriminating against them on the basis of being a man or a woman, mm. not who they're attracted to. And the philosophers who wrote um, an amicus brief pointed out that it's, as philosophers say, analytic. So it's part of the meaning of the claim that you can't discriminate against someone for sleeping with men without that being on the basis of, without appealing to sex. Mm -hmm. So you are discriminating. It is because of sex when you discriminate against someone for being a man who sleeps with men then you are discriminating against them on the basis of sex. So the philosophers pointed out that it's analytic that you can't discriminate against somebody on the basis of their gender identity or who they um, want to sleep with without discriminating against them because of sex. And the Constitutional Court used that philosophical... The Supreme Court, sorry, used that philosophical language in the actual judgment that was written.
0: That's a beautiful point, And that's where... Without undermining, like you say, your colleagues in other disciplines, there is something about the particular conceptual analyses that a philosophy education gives you, as you have explained so beautifully in the podcast um, interview thus far, allows you to be able to see. Because it, it, it would take enormous creativity if you are not trained in the discipline to see that analytic point.
1: Yes and I actually always tell my students um, at the beginning of a philosophy class that they can if their parents ask them what the, what the point is of studying philosophy that it's the most practical subject you can study because it's teaching you thinking skills how to argue carefully and rigorously how to present your arguments and how to analyze other people's arguments these are skills that employers constantly complain about they complain that you know business is constantly complaining that the new people that they're hiring can't write properly can't mm-hmm. express themselves in writing these are the skills that philosophers are training and you know when we look um so i'm 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 speaking to you from the us at the moment Eusebius, and so these are us data i don't think these data exist in the same form in south africa but in the us they have these entrance, standardized entrance exams for graduate Mm. school, if you want to do a postgraduate degree. And people who've done an undergraduate degree in philosophy do incredibly well at all of them. So the entrance exams for the graduate entrance exams for law school, philosophy graduates do the best at. Mm. In the the entrance exams for business school that MBAs take, the only um, undergraduate degrees which beat philosophers are Maths, physics, and engineering philosophy Mm. graduates do better in the entrance examinations for business school than people who've studied business, accountancy and economics.
0: Mm.
1: So, and so it's just a a very, very good training in thinking and presenting your thinking as Mm. you know, I think anybody who hears you on the radio can see. Mm. Um, But I wouldn't want to say that the value of philosophy is exhausted by those practical skills. I think ultimately its value is that it's expanding our thinking and understanding of ourselves as human beings in the world, our relationships to each other, our relationships to the world. It's, you know, a central part of humanity's project of cultural self-understanding and participating in that and exposing yourself to that is just a a wonderful and valuable thing in
0: itself. A third last question. Can philosophy help me to live well?
1: Um, That's a really great question, uh, Yubi, and I would say yes. And in fact, the Western, so-called Western philosophical tradition, traces its origins to um, the ancient Mediterranean world and philosophers in the ancient Mediterranean world, but also, in fact, um, the philosophers in, the, in a large part of the Indian philosophical tradition and I, I think also the Chinese philosophical tradition, that's what they started off thinking philosophy was about. Mm-hmm. It was simply about the question of how should one live. In fact, some people have been arguing that philosophy has lost sight a little bit about, of this Core and original question that it was focused on, which is how how should one live? Mm. Um, but there are a number of different things one can mean by that. One can mean, you know, how should I act? What is it? What is the morally right thing to do? What is it to be a good person? But one can also mean, how can I have deeper insight into you know my existential existence, the the value of relationships, the how do I face my own death? You know, these are also all questions that philosophers have grappled with and written very Mm. meaningfully about. And Mm. I think that massively contributes to living well.
0: Penultimate question. What is the relationship between philosophy and particularly more explicit empirical-based social scientific disciplines? And if I can be naughty... Do you think that philosophy and philosophers in general sometimes pay inadequate attention to empiricism?
1: I think that philosophers definitely have in the past paid inadequate attention. I think that's been changing massively. There's just an enormous amount of philosophy at the moment that is paying detailed attention to empirical work. There are philosophers working with cognitive scientists, philosophers work with psychologists, philosophers work with... Um, scientists, philosophers work with doctors, I I think there's really been a a, a real shift in that direction. And I think that there's a number of different things that philosophy can contribute in those ways. And and also, obviously, philosophers can learn an enormous amount and really need to pay attention to empirical disciplines. Um, But again, one of the things that philosophers can do is clarify very carefully what we're meaning by the assumptions that we're talking about so there's you know um psychological research there was this famous psychologist who claimed to have discovered that humans don't have free will um because he asked he gave people a task to choose at the some interval of time to press a button and to report when they were making the choice, and he found something happening in the brain before they reported making the choice, mm. and claimed that this proved that things are happening in our brain before we have the subjective experience of choice, and free will is just an illusion. Now, philosophers have done an enormous amount of work unpacking the assumptions. Mm. of the, the concepts that he's using, what he thinks a choice is. Why does he think that the decision is happening at the moment of mm. pressing the button rather than the entire interval during which a person has been given an instruction to think about doing this thing? Now, of course, psych- psychologists can also think about these assumptions, and they do, but that's something that philosophy particularly is, is very helpful in bringing to bear in interdisciplinary work is really clarifying exactly what we mean by the assumptions we're talking about. I, I'm working at the moment quite a bit on forgiveness. I'm writing a couple of papers on forgiveness, which is one of the main topics I work on. And there's a lot of psychological research on forgiveness, but they, it's a lot, often they just don't clarify very carefully exactly what they mean by forgiveness in the ways that philosophers would want us to. And that really makes a difference to what we take away from the research. So I think philosophers have a lot to contribute to interdisciplinary research. I think it's a shame that they haven't done it as much as they should Mm. in the past, but I think that's really changing.
0: The final question is a social philosophy question. Given the propensity for argumentation, careful conceptual analyses, do you think phenomenologically speaking, dating a philosopher is a cool idea? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> it has its challenges Yubi. <laughs> I once read a, um, a blog post by somebody who was dating a philosopher and she created this blog called living with a philosopher to give guidance to other people who were living with philosophers and she, and one of her recommendations was to have a safe word when you want to exit an argument <laughs> Because philosophers can pursue arguments relentlessly, pursuing fine-grained distinctions and, well, you know, this follows from that and coming up with crazy thought experiments and um, normal people don't always want to spend all their time doing that.
0: (laughs) Absolutely stunning. Thank you so much for giving us an incredible, incredible introduction to your discipline and also the particular questions that preoccupy you as a world-class philosopher.
1: It's wonderful as always talking to you, Eusebius. Thank you for the amazing work you've been doing.
0: That's exactly what we needed. Pitch perfect.
1: Awesome. Good.
0: Cheers. Enjoy the rest of the day. Cheers. Go and fight with Itimulang on Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) Cheers.
1: Speaking of argumentative, that's him. Cheers. (laughs) Thanks, UB. Cheers.